out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. In this podcast, I'm reading through all of the works of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Um, and right now we're working on one of his last works. Uh, it's called The Shadow Out of Time. Uh, this is the second episode. It's a little bit of a longer tale. So I decided to take it over the course of a couple episodes. Um, it's broken up pretty nicely between the first four chapters, which deal with uh, Peasley's amnesia his uh, his recovery and his later kind of exploration of what happened to him through through his dreams and a study of psychology. It's all really fascinating. Um, and then I also talked a lot about just the trauma of this event, how he lost his family, how he lost uh, his career. He had to kind of remake himself uh, in the context of these things that happened to him. He kind of had to change professions, went from being a uh, economist to being someone who studies uh, psychology. So he really went through a lot of changes as a result of these events. But most importantly, we learn about, through the exploration of his dreams, we learn about what really happened to him. And so we are introduced to this uh, species called the Great Race, which existed uh, long before humanity. It's another ancient race. Now, unlike the elder things, there's not survivals or Unlike the Shoggoths in At the Mountains of Madness, there aren't elements of this civilization still existing. Uh, it's long, long gone. It's also kind of unlike the mound in that way. But they're able to still live on by transferring their consciousness into people in different times. And they do this to study and to explore. And um, it's a very, very uh, interesting look at a civilization aware of its own decline, but still... Uh, exploring and still trying to learn more about the world. It's also implied that they kind of can shift. I don't think I mentioned this in the last episode, actually. It's also implied that they their form, these 10-foot tall cones, is not their actual original form, that they've, over time, you know, took over the bodies of these other um, races. And, you know, that's, I guess, a little bit more insidious aspect of their, of their character, but um, they are not as malevolent as some other creatures we've we've met um in in uh lovecraft's uh, stories uh now this i talked about their social structure and things like that but the focus that lovecraft the focus of lovecraft's interest in these uh great this great race is their their scientific philosophical curiosity and how this leads them to to use their technology to swap minds with people throughout time. And that's what happened to Peasley, right? Um, and he spent five years living among the elder things in the body, not the elder things, sorry, uh, in the bodies of the great race, living his uh, life as a member of the great race, um, but forgetting it when he comes back. But it still comes back to him through dreams. Um, so that's going to be important because he's going to remember things. going to remember. Now, it seems the great race can travel through space and time, but, you know, for this story to work, Peasley's going to have to find evidence of this ancient prehistoric you know, civilization, you know, on Earth. 
right? And that's really what the last four chapters explore. So the last four chapters are a story of exploration. It's kind of like a, kind of chapter five begins sort of how At the Mountains of Madness begins with, uh, or even like Shadow Over Innsmouth for that matter, or even The Nameless City or so many other stories uh, that Lovecraft wrote. Someone seeking out uh, some truth after being having their interest piqued and then and finding something horrifying, uh, at least personally for them, or if just not universally horrifying. Now, it's a little bit of both for Peasley, because there, there's elements of what he discovers, in this case it's in Western Australia, that are, of course, personal to him. He realizes that he was here um, at some point, like millions of years earlier, but he also learns that whatever destroyed the great race might still be living on. It's very subtle, but there's evidence that, that something's moving down there, right? In this sense, it's like at the Mountains of Madness or the Nameless City. So that's kind of what happens. It's, it's not the more interesting part of the story, in my view. I think the first half is more interesting, and especially because we've seen the second half so many times, but um, it does have some nice, nice moments nonetheless. So anyways, if you like The Nameless City, you'll like the second half of The Shadow Out of Time, I think. Um, so, um, actually there's mentions of, of The Nameless City, or at least it's referenced in, this, in the story in various ways. Um, although so many of his stories do kind of go back to that one, I think in hindsight that's such an important story for setting up this kind of trope that he continues to reuse. Um, but I'm not going to talk too much about this, to be honest, because I, I think it's not the most, um, it doesn't add too much to our, I guess, overall picture of, of Lovecraft, right? I've actually been trying to put together a manuscript, and this is one of the stories that, disappointingly, I, I just don't find I can fit into as much my overall themes, right? It doesn't seem to have a prominent place in it, partially because, like, everything here that's interesting has been done elsewhere, um. I don't want to say better. It's just been been done in other of his stories, and and to be honest, I kind of like the mound more than more than this this entire story, um, which I already talked about uh, in a previous episode. So um, as chapter five begins, Peasley Nathaniel Peasley. There's the two Peasleys, his son and and him. Um, and actually, it's interesting. Much of this this whole text as it exists in, in, in published form here, is meant to be Peasley explaining himself in part to his son, right? to explain his madness and, and the things that happened to him as convincingly as possible. Anyway, he's been publishing. Nathaniel Peasley, the one who had the amnesia, is beginning to publish. Um, and he's beginning through this publication and to begin a normal academic life. He's even publishing things like the Journal of American Psych, you know, Psychological Society and things like that. So... He's kind of gotten his life back on track by the end of the 1920s. It took him like 20 years, though. To kind of, oh, you know, 15 years or so to get back to the state. Now, something changes uh, in the summer of 1934, in which he gets a, a, a letter from Western Australia. And it includes photographs, um, and I'll describe them. Um, they are stood out against a background of sand, certain worn-down, water-rigged, water-ridged, storm-weathered blocks of stone whose slightly convex tops and slightly concave bottoms told their old story. Um, and they horrify him when he sees them. And then he reads the letter, and the letter's from... Um, who wrote it? This guy, Robert B.F. 
McKenzie. So he's uh, like an archaeologist in Western Australia, and he's the one who came across these these stones, these blocks, and they match things he talked about experiencing in his in his dreams. Um, this is kind of reminiscent of the Whispering Darkness, where you have a character just trying to write about folklore and someone responding like a almost like a fan letter saying, "Yeah, you're not quite right here. I don't know if I totally agree with you." I've had my own experiences, and that begins a correspondence. This is just one letter, um, but, you know, he says, like, the things you've been talking about, including the marks on some of these stones, match very much what we're running into as we're digging around here. No, he's not an archaeologist. He's a mining engineer, so he's just a miner. The archaeologist things come later to the to the story. Um, but he digs around, and he, he he's... I, found he's he basically this Mackenzie is, is is led to seek out Peasley so he basically says you know you might want to come check it out and he gives the exact location um and he says you better make it in you know the northern hemisphere winter uh, so it's going to be a year later it's going to be one year after the events of after getting this letter that he's going to take the eventually do this expedition now there is kind of this inside joke here where Professor William Dyer of the Geology Department, leader of the previous Miskatonic Antarctic Expedition, is is eager to take part in this expedition, right? Even though it's 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 got a weird overhang. Now maybe he's calmed down since that. I mean, I don't know if there's an internal story here. There's an, we don't really know, but you know he writes the, at the moments of madness is written in such a in, in a way that it's warning. Don't do this expedition you're planning. That expedition would have happened in in universe here by that point, and you know what did they find out? It's not really clear. Maybe, maybe Dyer found out. Ah, I, I overreacted or whatever. They didn't really go to the city of the elder things, and everything turned out okay. But anyways, he's down. He's down for another expedition. Um, and then they they sail from Boston through the Suez Canal all the way to Australia. And then they start their excava excavation. Um, so this is in the summer of 1935 is when they do this um, um, this work. And they find interesting stuff. Quote, a month of digging brought a total of some 1,250 blocks in various stages of wear and disintegration. Most of them were carved megaliths with curved tops and bottoms. The minority were small, flat, or plain surfaced, or square, or octagonally cut like those on the floor and pavement in my dreams while a few were singularly massed and curved or slanted in such a manner as to suggest using vaulting or groining, whereas parts of arches are round window casings. The deeper and to the farther north we and east we dug, the more blocks we found, though we still failed to discover any type of arrangement among them. Professor Dyer was appalled at the measureless age of the fragments, and Freeborn found traces of symbols which fitted darkly into certain Pauppin and Polynesian legends of infinite antiquity, end quote. So maybe Dyer's a you know, being appalled is a sign that he's a bit worried that he's kind of <clears throat> whatever happened to before will happen again here. But anyways, Dyer's not a major part of the story. It's just uh, it's just uh, a character gets reused. Now remember that these two stories, the Shadow at a Time and At the Mounts of Madness, although written a few years apart, were published at the same time in Astounding Ma in the same magazine, Astounding Magazine. So maybe this was just a continuity for the sake of the readers. So during the expedition, he. At one point, it's the night of July 17th to 18th, he, he wanders on on his own. And there's, 
and, and it returns sometime later, warning people not to explore that area anymore, and you know, trying to actually put an end to the expedition altogether, right? And then he makes arrangements with the son to return to Perth and then return ho home. So eventually, that's what happens. Uh, his son takes them all the way to Perth just a few days after the events of that night of July seventeenth to eighteenth. Um, he doesn't want to end the expedition and, and go home, but but uh, the father does. The, the narrator chooses to return home, and he's on this ship writing this this note. So the rest of the story then details what happened on that night of, of July seventeenth to eighteenth. At that time, he went off on his own and entered the this area of the excavation. Um, and he says he was driven by pseudo-memories. He says this continually throughout the story, that it's pseudo-memories that's driving him to explore. He sees something, he recognizes it, he recognizes the blocks, their shapes, and he keeps getting drawn by this, not really fully curiosity, but really a, a deeper, um, the, the draw of, of something familiar. Quote, nerves on edge and whipped into a kind of perverse eagerness by that unexplicable dream-mingled pseudo-mammonic urge towards the northeast, I plodded on beneath the evil burning moon. Here and there I saw half-shrouded by the sands, those primal cyclopean blocks left from nameless and forgotten hands. The incalculable age and brooding horror of this monstrous waste began to oppress me as nothing ever before, and I could not keep from thinking of my maddening dreams or the frightful legends which lay behind them, and of the present fears of natives and miners concerning the desert and its carved stone." Unquote. I mention this because we don't get too much of this in the story of like these local legends, which is such a major theme in so many of his stories. But he almost never f forgets to include some little taste of it. And here it's this, the indigenous people of Australia, right? And the, the working class people around there, they have their own rumors about this area and they stay away from it. Um, this actually comes up much more strongly, I think, in The Haunter in the Dark, which is in many ways all about media and and local traditions and histories and and local f perspectives of geography and things maybe that's kind of an argument i i i, I want to work out i've been thinking more and more about lovecraft and geography while doing this um series and there's not a singular geography there's the there's the bottom up there's the vernacular geography and there's the the more elite geography. There's the way the people, the educated, the powerful see the world, and there's the way, you know, the cultists see the world, the way indigenous people see the world, the people who are closer culturally and in their traditions to these folk, to the, to these, to these, this, this whole other realm, right? I think that's a overall theme of Lovecraft is that the, the lower classes, the indigenous people, they're more in tune to the cosmic realities. Um, and they, they come to terms with it by trying to forget it. They know not to go there or to not to think about it or, or not to carry on those stories too much. You know, just keep things in the realm of rumors. It's the educated people who want to map every corner of the world that don't, um, that choose the more dangerous path, I guess. And here Peasley is doing that. Although he's really being drawn um, to this area by this, what he calls pseudo-memories. Um, and as he's doing this, he gets more and more, there's a dialogue in his head about knowledge and about what he knows. Quote, I started violent, I stared vi started violently at those conce conceptions occurred, sorry, 
I started violently as these conceptions occurred to me, for there was more in them than the blocks themselves have supplied. How did I know that this level should have been far underground? How did I know that the plane leading upward should have been behind me? How did I know that the long subterranean passage to the square of the pillars ought to lie on the level one above me? How did I know that the room of machines and the rightward leading tunnel to the central archives ought to lie two levels below me? How did I know that there would be one of these horrible metal-banded trapdoors at the very bottom, four levels down? Bewildered by this intrusion from the dream world, I found myself shaking and bathed in cold perspiration. So anyways, by this point, he's pursuing the descent, right? And it's clearly insane to do this. Peasley is aware of this, that he, he, it's insane to do this, but he can't really stop himself. Quote, again, there was manifest that lure and driving a fatality, which had all along seemed to direct my course. With torch flashing intermittently to save the battery, I commenced a mad scramble down the sinister cyclopean incline before the opening. Sometimes facing forward, I found good handholds, footholds, and at other times turning to face the heap of megaliths as I clung and fumbled more precariously, end quote. It's actually, compared to the descent we see in, at the Mountains of Madness, this one is, is really dangerous, right? It's very these steep uh, ramps and the... You know, everything's kind of breaking up and there's gaps and he's got to jump over things and he's all beaten up by this. It's, it's, um, you know, he comes out of this looking pretty rough, actually. But anyways, there's this long descent. So much of chapter nine just deals with this arrival to the site and this descent. Um, and of course, we know he survives it, but this, dry, this pushes him away from this dig altogether and he wants to put an end to it entirely. Now, he knows where he is. He knows he's like... In this city of the great race, he's actually literally approaching the archives, this great library that he studied in for five years in the body of one of these Yithians, one of the bodies of one of this great race type. But there's two things he really discovers here. The first is the proof that these aren't just dreams. It's not just some kind of, uh, it's not just even like a pseudo memory. It's a real memory, right? That's the first thing he learns. The second thing he learns is that there's something alive down here. And that's, that's a little bit subtler in the, in the story. In fact, I missed it the first time I read this. But it's pretty subtle. Um, and here's where it is. Um, there's dust on the ground, right? Quote, um, It was only when I was nearly across the space that I realized why I shook so violently. Not the heat, but something about the dust on the level floor was troubling me. In the light of my torch, it seemed as if that dust were not even as it ought to be. There were places where it looked thinner, as if it had been disturbed not many months before. I could not be sure, for even the apparently thinner places were dusty enough. Yet a certain suspicion of regularity in the fancied unevenness was highly disquieting. When I brought the torchlight close to one of the queer places, I did not like what I saw, for the illusion of regularity became very great. It was as if there were regular lines of composite impressions, impressions that went in threes, each slightly over a foot square and consisting of five nearly circular three-inch prints, one in advance of the other four. Um, and then they, they appear in multiple directions and things too, so it's, it seems they, there might be more than one of them, or at least it has a very strange biology, whatever made these impressions. So there's something down there, right? And what it, it's implied, I think, that this whatever this is, is the entity, the race, the creatures that put an end finally to the Yithian um, race, the, the great race. But, not in, but there's an asterisk to that because they can still 
project their minds to other times. So there are still Yithians around. They're just in the minds of humans or other races throughout the cosmos. They kind of get a type of immortality this way, right? Um, maybe this way. There's a parallel a bit to, an obvious parallel to the thing on the doorstep. Um, the other thing he sees, and this gets us to the final chapter of the book, is or of the of the story, is he finds uh, this book. Um, and it's a very particular book that uh, turns out it has his handwriting in it. Right, that's the that's like the last line of the story. Um, even though he picked up this book earlier, and I think it's implied he looked at it, but we don't get the like Lovecraft does this all the time. It's like he saves the the horrific punchline for the last moment of the story. You, if you find it horrific, I, I don't. I think many readers don't anymore. But he, he kind of saves the the revelation to the last moment, even if it could have been revealed earlier in the story. Um, but basically, that's what it is. It's his handwriting. It's in in English, on the margins of the book. So he, you know, he had been here whatever millions of years ago, and this proves that he really was transported. You know, he really was mind swapped with the Yithians, and that wasn't just a dream. It wasn't just pseudo memories. It was real memories that um, that. Um, account for all of his, you know this these events that have you know covered much of his life right really most of his adult life um, he ends kind of with a series of conclusions uh, towards the end of the story um, what in truth had happened to me had i merely collapsed in the desert and dragged a dream rocked body over miles of sand and buried blocks this is after he returns if not how can i bear to live any longer for in this new doubt, all of my faith in the myth-born unreality of my visions dissolved once more into the hellish older doubting. If the abyss were real, then the great race was real. And its blasphemous reaching and seizures in the cosmic wide vortex of time were no myths or nightmares, but a terrible soul-shattering actuality. End quote. Of course. Obviously. Right? This narrator is much denser than, than us, apparently. Uh, moving on, quote, had I in full hideous fact been drawn back to a pre-human world of 150 million years ago in those dark, baffling days of the amnesia, had my present body been the vehicle of a frightful alien consciousness from Pelagonian gulfs of time, had I, in the captive mind of those shambling horrors, indeed known that accursed city in stone in its primordial heyday and wriggled down those familiar corridors in the loathsome shape of my captor, were those tormenting dreams of more than 20 years, the offspring of stark monstrous memories? Had I once verily talked with minds from each corners of time and space, learned the universe's secrets past and to come, and written the annals of my own world for the metal cases of those Titan archives? End quote. Yeah, I guess that's another part of it, right? When they get um, mind-swapped, they're, even though they're not allowed to really remember anything, or that's their, their intention is that they don't remember any things when they're returned, they are encouraged to write down as much of their history and whatever they remember in these books, so it's all collected to the library, right? Um, but, you know, yes, the answer is obviously yes. He, he had been here, right? And these are real memories, not pseudo-memories. And that's, that's how the story ends, right? And then, you know, in the timeline of the story, the next day he says, we got to get out of here. we got to stop this expedition. But if you're not going to stop, I'm at least leaving. He goes... Uh, you know, takes the ship back to back to Boston, and and he's and he writes down the narrative while on the ship back to um, back home. So that's it. That's the shadow out of time. 
Um, as, as you see, it's the second half doesn't have as much, I think, to talk about. Partially because we we've seen this so many times, it, it's a bit, it's a bit repetitive, and I don't want to repeat myself too much. It is it is fun. It is a nice description. I actually think it's more interesting and engaging than than the long drawn out way he does it in at the mountains of madness. Because here he doesn't have he's not. I think it works better because in At the Mountains of Madness, you have that really kind of silly... It's the same in The Nameless City. You have the silly kind of device where the narrator can just look at the wall drawings and figure out the whole history of the civilization. Uh, in The Mound, he actually experiences it more directly. In The Shadow of Time, he's able to remember it. And I think that's the most effective of, of these three approaches. Um, that, you know, it comes through dreams, but you realize that these are real memories. And that his insights into this world are, are real because they're based on his actual experiences. But so I, that's the thing I like about it. But again, the, this just digging down into a into a scary dungeon and you know an old abandoned city from millions of years ago with cyclopean architecture and then something horrible happens and then you have to flee and wander back. I mean, physically, I mean the trauma here is greater than we've seen. I think in other kind of these explorer. Uh, tales, um, you know, it seems Dyer uh, gets out of At the Mountains of Madness pretty, uh, without too many scratches, Stanforth goes mad uh, because he seems to see something um, that, that Dyer didn't see. But this guy, he's like, he's in the desert, right? And he was, he wandered there and he's all beaten up from his falls and stumbling through the, through these, uh, through this old antique city um so that's that's a nice uh, element it gives it a, a, a bit of, of realism i think but anyways um i guess that's it sorry i don't have more to say about the shadow of time if you were expecting me to, to to have a lot to say i it doesn't really tie that much to the themes i've been exploring in this podcast the ones i've been focusing on like race um class uh history i, I think where it might and i'll I think I'll, I'll step back a little bit and say in one area that it might be really significant is in this idea of rising, falling civilizations. But again, it's not that original. It's like we've seen this. We've seen it in the Nameless City. We've seen it in the Mound. We've seen it in at the Mountains of Madness that these civilizations, they reach their peak and then they get to their, their point of decadence and they decline. They're overrun by some other force. So there is that. That's always there. It's all the, you know, in one of his earliest stories, Polaris, it's there. And it's, it's here too, that some great civilization will be overrun by these foreign invaders at some point. So that's there, and that's never far from the surface. But beyond that, there's not much thematically that I'm super interested in here. This really is a, uh, about the deep history of Earth. That's, that's really what it's trying to get at. Um, which of course again we've also already seen at the, at the moments of madness and you know it's a, it's a it's a it's a tighter story i think than at the moments of madness and that that's that makes it age a little bit better i think so what else here i don't know it's a good one but i think that's all i'm going to say about it so anyways uh that leaves only one more story uh that we need to look at that lovecraft published uh, wrote and published during his lifetime. And that's The Haunter in the Dark. So that'll be next. So if there's, you know, I'm probably, there's probably a lot I didn't mention about Shadow of Time that is near and dear to your heart. So let me know what you think I not give enough um, 
due diligence to, um, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com um, and, uh, or find me on Twitter, um, and I will respond to you. Uh, so thanks as always for listening, and I'll, I'll see you next time. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to say you've never known me stranger after sharing all your kisses